As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the Archives of Unbelievable from March 2015. Ruth Preston, Callum Miller and Peter S. Williams of the UK Apologetics Facebook group took on a variety of questions from callers. Ben, who lost his faith, wanted to know why God didn't provide him with more evidence. Michael asked, why should I believe Paul? Tim wanted to know why evangelicals can be so insular. And Brian had questions about the moral argument for God. Well, today we're doing something a little bit different on Unbelievable. Uh, I'm actually joined in my little cubbyhole of a studio today by uh, three guests uh, who join me around the table. And uh, they're all members uh, or have an interest in a stake in uh, UK Apologetics. Uh, Well, that's uh, both a Facebook group, which you can find by searching on Facebook, uh, or you can go to the blog, which is apologeticsuk.blogspot.co.uk. But I've got Callum Miller, uh, who is a medical student. I think uh, you're somewhere along the, the journey in your medical career, aren't you, Callum? Would that be fair to say? Yeah, so I'm just coming towards the end of it now. So I've finished my finals, final exams and now I've just got graduation in July after a few little bits and pieces. And you've been on the show before, of course, uh, last year. Uh, debating James Croft wasn't it yeah back in the summer uh, it was it was good debate uh, so so it's good to have you back in the studio Thank thanks you. thanks for coming in um, <laughs> Peter S Williams who was on the show just recently uh, joins us uh, uh, Peter you're you're kind of um, not one of the founders of the apologetics UK no. group but but you you certainly have taken interest in in the Facebook group and contribute occasionally to some of the stuff that goes on there, don't you? No, no, not really. Okay, um, you're just here. You're purely here as a friend, then, in that sense, to 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 the thing. Yes, what well, do I, I? It's a it's a jolly good thing. Well, there's too 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 little time in life for the things that need doing, aren't there? But, uh, I fully fully support it, and uh, these guys and I are, are all trustees of the Christian Evidence Society. Indeed, as well, so we've been we've anyway. been killing many birds with one stone by by having a meeting and then coming into studio to, to have a discussion as well. Uh, Ruth Preston also joins me. Um, Ruth, uh, you, you are a founder uh, and in, involved in UK apologetics. Oh, it's, I am, it's, yes. How would you describe it? Uh, a kind of an informal network of people in the UK who are into apologetics? Would, would that be fair? Yeah, exactly that. And it's a forum on Facebook where you can ask your questions and um, people can get together to think about the answers, which I find very useful and productive mm. for myself and I think for everyone else who's involved. Good. And uh, what's uh, what's your background? What, what are you studying at the moment, Ruth? Uh, I'm doing a master's degree in sociology, the sociology of religion. Good. Which is, I find, very interesting. Good. Excellent. Well, um, what what I like about the the UK apologetics group, and I'm sometimes uh, sort of watching what's going on there as well, is um, obviously uh, it, it, it's essentially aimed. At least the Facebook group is aimed at people who have an interest. It's not for necessarily atheist, non-Christian, um, and Christian debating as as it were. It's more for exchanging ideas between between like-minded people, yes. to, to, so that you can encourage each other and and kind of learn to go out and have those conversations and discussions and yes kind of exactly thing. it's 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 an in-house group as it yeah. were um but we aim to be able to help each other answer objections um that you know anyone in, in anyone can ask us at any time so yeah, yeah. great stuff okay and uh, and and what i like about it as well is it, it seems to have sort of been it, it primarily driven by a fairly young group of people um, who, who just wanted to have that kind of a network and uh, have it online and so on. So if you if you do want to pick it up and um, and see what happens and, and join the group and so on, if you're interested in in apologetics, uh, then why not seek it out on Facebook, uh, UK Apologetics, or go to the 
the blog. That's uh, apologeticsuk.blogspot.co.uk. Okay, um, well, we're going to have, as I say, something a bit different today. We're going to take a few calls across the course of the show. Let's call it a Grill and Apologist show. Uh, And uh, I put out a little call on my own Facebook page for people um atheists agnostics skeptics to get in touch they'd be interested in contributing to the program and so we've got a few of those people who did get back to me uh, lined up today and uh, the first person who we're going to be talking to is ben watts based here in the uk he's an ex-evangelical christian actually he grew up in a, a new frontiers church before losing his faith and he wants to uh, just uh, t- tackle a particular objection um so one of the things that he f- he finds interesting about the fact that he did lose his faith um so w- welcome along to the program ben hello good to be here it's great to have you with us and, and thanks for uh, being willing just to, to throw your hat into the ring and come on the program uh, uh, we, yeah, we were no, we're not going to have as much time as we normally do for the for the interaction so so it'll be kind of a more of a, a mini interaction but um do you want to just spell out what what your issue is yeah sure I, I think just the fact that um i lost my faith and um i guess there's there's several several things i am convinced by as a scientist um the most obvious being sort of evolution um and i guess thinking about god as being an you know an all-powerful deity who can do anything he so desires mm. i think um it seems a bit weird that he wouldn't give enough evidence to satisfy me and others in in um in our belief i think i think especially adding the fact that you know um hell eternal punishment is on the card so um I mean, I could probably get over it if it was, you know, a slap on the wrist for not for not believing. But mm. it's something that's, you know, a bit more than that. So, um, yeah, I guess in a nutshell, that's why what what the big sure. problem I have. So, so if God does exist and it's so important to believe in God, why didn't he offer more conclusive evidence? I so think that so. And, and on yeah, like absolutely, and on the evidence on the level of things like evolution, which is scientific, and you know, there's there's actual. Tangible evidence for it, rather than just the evidence. That's and and when you mention evolution, do you mean by that I, I can have belief in that because it's there's enough evidence? For I think it? so. Or, yeah. Or are you I, saying that's yeah. an objection to Christianity as well? Or, or, or uh, no, I, I think that's that's something that I am convinced by as as a scientist. That something right. like you know the, the the world being round or, or mm. evolution being true mm. is based on lots and lots of scientific evidence. And I, I just wonder why that's not in the same category as the evidence that God offers yeah. for his existence. Okay, well, great, great question. Um, so let's um, let's open this up to those who are, who are with us here in studio. Ruth, do you want to start off with this one? Yeah, um, I think it's a very interesting question um, and one that I think I have thought about in the past myself before as well, although um, I didn't lose my faith over it. So hopefully I'll be able to bring some ideas that might be useful to you. Um, the first thing is, I think... God doesn't always work in the way that we think he might. Um, and I think it can be easy um, if God is not revealing himself in the way we expect to then assume that maybe he's not revealing himself at all. Um, and I don't think that's the case. And so this is me encouraging you that God has revealed himself in what I believe um, are very pers- persuasive ways. The first one being uh, the existence of morality, um, that sense of wrong and right in all of us, that sense of what one ought to do, uh, that the aspect of morality that I would argue is objective as well, um, that transcends culture and um, history. Uh, another one would be the, ex- uh, the existence of creation, when you look in the, s- uh, look in the sky o- of an evening and there's a beautiful sunset, there's something about the beauty um, in what has been created that really... There's something about beauty which is beyond the, uh, the scientific realm. An appreciation for beauty can't really be measured in that scientific way. And I think there's something about God in us that recognises beauty and when we see it. Um, also, just the fact that the universe has been created at all, that the universe is there. So you've got the question... Um, Uh, you know where did the universe come from in the first place that's a big question that I think for myself is satisfied by my belief in God Um, also still on the same point of um, of the existence of creation is human beings ourselves ourselves the fact that we are so very different to all the animals in so many ways I mean I'm sure that animals are 
advanced in their own ways. There's some animals which are obviously more intelligent than others, but the degree to which human beings are more advanced than any animal is is significant. From your perspective here, Ben, I guess you you might say, well, okay, yes, there are arguments for God. Mm. And, and I mean, mm. what you've effectively described there, Ruth, is a sort of maybe cumulative argument, you know, look yes. at this, look at that, look at the other. Yeah. Um, but is your point maybe, Ben, it doesn't impress me overwhelmingly to the point that I just have to accept it? I think so. I think mm. the fact that, that an all-powerful deity of God knows how my brain works and knows that the, the, sort, the types of evidence that will convince me... Um, and as using, you know, like going back to evolution as an example of something that has convinced me, it's it's not like I've completely closed-minded to any any sort of evidence whatsoever. There's, there's a good example. There's good examples of of evidences that I accept. You, you had a bit more to add. I, think, I had a bit more to add. Yeah. I'm um, so um, moving on. Um, it's interesting. You seem to be saying, if I've understood you correctly, that mm. you feel that you would want to be persuaded or compelled to believe in God, so that he would. Uh, provide you with all of the evidences that would give, leave you without a doubt that he exists. He existed, uh, that he exists. Sorry. Mm. Um, interestingly, G- one of Jesus' followers actually asked him uh, a similar question. He said, um, "Why have you revealed yourself to us and not to the world?" And interestingly, Jesus' answer is that those who love him will obey his teaching. What's interesting about that is he brings in the concept of love. Now, I think that God, in his, um, in his beauty and his, his goodness and uh, amazingness, he wants to have a relationship with the creatures that he's created with us, essentially. Um, and I think that when he created us, he, he wanted us to love him. And to love someone, you need to be able to choose I do believe that if I mean this is a, this is an idea in my head, but I think it might, it makes sense that if God were to compel you in such a way that you could not deny at all, you would have to follow Him, and in the same way, maybe everyone on Earth would He really be a, a creating a situation in which you can choose to love Him? It, it's an interesting point. In a sense, mm. you're, you're saying there, Ruth, God may have a good reason for not giving you overwhelming evidence mm. for his existence, which is that he wants to get it, leave enough ambiguity mm. that you actually have to kind of make a conscious choice yes. to love and believe yes. and, and put your trust in, in, in such a God. It would almost seem like a, a forced kind of arrangement if, if it was so overwhelming that you had no choice but to yes, that's believe. That's an idea of mine. It's not something that's necessary. Well, I don't think it's it's it's, it's certainly <laughs> not the first person I've heard have that idea in the sense. Yes. So, so I think it's it's an interesting one. Any thoughts on that, Ben? And yeah, then we'll I, throw I, it out to the others. A, yeah, I think it's a good point. I think the the, the overriding point to me is that um, I I would take that as good as a good answer if if hell and eternal punishment wasn't on the cards. And I think the fact that we're talking about an eternity of punishment or a separation from God, if I don't if I don't accept this, to me, I, I, I don't mind if God, you know, for, compels me or forces me to believe in him. It, it wouldn't matter to me because, you know, I would be believing the correct answer, the correct view. Mm. Um, so I think just the fact that that this is the outcome if I don't believe means that I find that, you know, a, sure. a not compelling objection for me anyway. So, yeah. and, and, and I guess at some level it seems a bit unfair that... that, that your eternal destiny rests on whether you got were convinced yeah. or not by yeah. by the evidence. Um, yeah. P- Peter S. Williams? Mm. Sure, I, I, I think this is a really crucial point uh, and following on from this distinction that we've had between merely believing that there's a God or not and, and responding to God in relationship. I, I think it's really crucial to point out that the Bible does not say that God uh, arranges hell for for simply a lack of belief in God, that it's it's not that that if you fail to believe in the existence of God, then you get sent to, to hell. I think it's very clear in the Bible that you you only end up in hell by uh, by knowing that there is a God and consciously deciding to reject relationship with Him. Mm. Um, so it's not a lack of belief that there is a God. Mm. that is the condition of hell but rather a knowing that there is a god and rejecting him not wanting anything to do with him um so it's not really the issue of believing that there is a god that's connected yeah. to hell 
Rather, it's the issue of whether or not you want to be with God in eternity or not that's connected to hell. Any thoughts on that, Dan? Um, I think, um, I guess I guess it's uh, an interesting point, knowing it comes to the debate, debate of once saved, always saved, doesn't it? Of you know, I, I did used to believe in God and accepted it and was a Christian, and obviously now I've changed my mind on that. But um, so you know, that that's a different point. But I think something like uh, someone like Christopher Hitchens, who was quite clear in the things that he said that I cannot find it within myself to believe in this God and was obviously never never a Christian um, makes me think but what's interesting I suppose with with his particular example is he also said and if there is a God I will wave my fist at him and say you're a despicable dictator so in a sense it sounds like he wouldn't want to be wherever God is uh, in the end he'd want to be presumably I think it's just this crucial point is it is it's not about ignorance of God or not that leads to your eternal destination. It's how you respond to your knowledge of God. Whenever it is you get that knowledge, and of course Christians have different ideas about whether whether you might be able to get a knowledge of God after death and before the last judgment and so on, but it's the knowledge of God that you have, how you respond to that, that's the key issue here, rather than ignorance of whether or not God it happens to exist. Uh, bringing it back to... Um the idea of loving God you know that he said that if God did exist he would wave his fist at him um, makes which is an interesting point there isn't it when Jesus says those who love me will know me those who do not will not essentially that's something that that seems to be the implication of what he's saying and I would I would say actually Christopher Hitchens fits that description mm. um, and that was just a point I thought we, we, I, I knew it would be the case when we're taking quite a few <laughs> calls, but inevitably we could have gone on for the whole show because um, it sounds like it's a, it, it would be a really interesting one to draw out further. Um, what if I promise you, Ben, that we'll get you on for a proper discussion Fantastic. at some point yeah, and, and we'll brilliant. be able to, to tease this out a bit further. That'd be really great. Thank It'd you. Yeah. good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for uh, making yourself available anyway. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Special edition of the show today. I'm joined by um, three people, all involved in apologetics in the UK. Uh, two of them, Callum and Ruth, uh, both founder members of the UK Apologetic Facebook group. Uh, it's also got a blog as well. You can visit links from today's show at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Uh, Peter S. Williams is sort of just jo- joining us for the ride, really. Uh, he's, a, he's a Christian philosopher, writer, uh, has contributed to a few shows here on Unbelievable in his own time too. And uh, we've got another guest on the line. Uh, and um, we very truly are an international show, Unbelievable. So we're going to New York now to hear from, and pr- forgive me if I mispronounce this, but is it Michael Vinciguera? You, you're close enough, yes. Okay. Vinci Guerra, would that be correct? There you go. Okay, Vinci Guerra. Michael, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the programme today. Um, uh, just a very kind of we, we, we're just having sh- kind of short interactions on the programme today but you, you've got an interesting question it's more of a biblical question I think so do you want to do you want to just uh, put this to us and we'll see what the panel have to say well it, yeah sure it's probably one that they've heard well, a few times um, and it comes more from the Muslim side uh, uh, against Christianity I guess it would be I don't understand how Christians overlook everything Jesus said not everything Jesus said but they place more faith in Paul and his writings when he never met the physical Jesus. We don't really, I mean, if you really want to base your faith on uh, Christianity, you have to base it on Paul, because he disallows some things which Jesus absolutely allowed and had done. So uh, I, I don't know how you, you can believe in Christianity by following Paul. That's mm. probably my question. That, that's an interesting one. So, so in a sense, because so much Christian doctrine is dependent on what Paul said and wrote in the Bible. Pretty much, yes, or um, what he didn't say. or yes. Yeah, and, and yet he himself never physically met Jesus. Uh, so, so we're kind of placing a lot, an awful lot of faith in Paul, in that in, sense, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, in Paul, before you even place your faith in Jesus. You have to assume Paul did have this revelation and if you assume that it was a revelation, how do you know? How does Paul know it was Jesus? It could have been, and if you believe in this kind of stuff, couldn't it have been uh, a demon? Um, okay, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. How, how do we know? Um, okay, lots, lots in that question in a way. Um, so uh, we haven't ha- given you a chance to respond yet, Callum. So maybe we'll start with you this time, um, Callum Miller. Um, what, what would you say to this kind of an objection? 
Yeah, hi, Michael. Thank you. That's actually a really good question. And when I read it um, the first time last night, I was actually, you know, I thought this actually isn't a question I get particularly often. It is a really important one. Um, the first thing I guess I would say is that if there is a conflict between Jesus and Paul, uh, as you say, Jesus should be given priority. I think most pe- most Christians will probably say that there isn't much tension between them, and so they're happy to accept both. But I, I would agree with you that if there is any kind of surface conflict, I think we should give Jesus the kind of um, priority there. Uh, and I think it, it would be a bad thing if we were taking Paul as kind of the main figure of Christianity, because he's not. Obviously, the main figure is Jesus. Now, the question is, um, how do we know that there's a really tight relationship between Paul and Jesus, so that Paul and Jesus were saying roughly... Th- the same things um, and I think one of the useful things that can be done here is and what I did last night was I kind of traced out a diagram of just a few people involved and and looked at the links between them and so I looked at St. Paul, St. Peter who was Jesus' kind of number one disciple and then I looked at Mark, the author of Mark's Gospel who uh, according to many church references in, in church tra- tradition um, was a follower of Peter and I also looked at Luke who accompanied Paul on some of his journeys And what I did was I looked through all the biblical references and the early church references to see which links we could draw between all four of these people. And actually, there were a surprising number of links between them. So just as an example, um, between Peter and Paul, there are lots of meetings. Uh, Paul mentions a couple in Galatians, chapters one and two. Um, Paul mentions No, Luke mentions meetings between Paul and Peter in the book of Acts. Uh, He talks about three times that Paul went to Jerusalem where Peter was. uh, And and Paul in Galatians talks about Peter coming to Antioch to see Paul. Uh, Sorry if that got a little bit confusing. But there are a kind of number of meetings between Paul and some of the key disciples and people interested in Christianity. And a lot of the people who were followers of Jesus from the start. And so actually I think... Yeah, yeah, go on. There's also animosity in there, though. I mean, are you referring to kind of the circumcision debate? Uh, well, that 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 would be one. Actually, that was my my main one, only because uh, Jesus was, Peter was, Paul was. Jesus never said to stop it, so it's like that's one of my my, my main ones. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so. Like I think that's an important thing. And um, what I thought here was that there's actually only really a surface tension between Paul and Peter on this issue. So if you look at Galatians chapter 2, where Paul talks about his meeting with Peter in Antioch, um, it's never actually said that Peter thought that Gentiles should be circumcised. What Paul is pointing out is that Peter's practices were kind of hypocritical and they were varying depending on who Peter was with. Uh, whereas actually, if we look at the account of Peter's views on the question of circumcision. If we go to Acts 15, for example, we actually find Peter explicitly saying uh, that actually the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised uh, and that there are, you know, he lays out a few moral kind of doctrines which the Gentile Christians should be following. Uh, and you get that in Acts 21 as well, taking the example away from Peter and towards James. Um, some people think there might be a bit of conflict there. But again, in Acts 21, uh, James talks about Paul as, you know, his beloved brother in Christ. And there's there's lots of kind of flattering and um, family language in there. And so I think any tension to do with the circumcision debate is actually kind of on a surface level. Whereas if you look at the accounts in Acts, although there's certainly some disagreement, um, what we find here is that actually Paul and the church in Jerusalem and the early followers of Jesus all had a great love for each other and they respected each other. Uh, and they actually did agree on circumcision and on quite a few of the moral doctrines they they give there in acts 15 i mean is your problem essentially michael that that paul sort of builds on what jesus establishes and and so for you that's questionable because in the end um you know why trust paul over over jesus exactly and also actually uh, you just brought up another good yes it says it in acts the problem is that acts is clearly biased towards Paul. We don't know that that's what actually happened. You're saying we don't get Peter's perspective on what happened. We get Luke's kind of version. E- exactly. We only get yeah. Luke, which is pretty much Paul's, I would say, or at least in the Pauline camp. We never really hear what Peter says about that. Okay. Quick response, Callum. Yeah, I guess just one thing uh, before I hand over to Ruth here is just that uh, if there was a real conflict between Paul and Peter and Luke was biased in favour of Paul in the book of Acts, which we might grant for the sake of argument, uh, if there was a real conflict and there was that bias, we would actually expect Acts to be more um, kind of damning towards Peter. And what we find is actually in Acts, Luke, uh, although he might note that Peter and Paul disagreed, for example... Um, he is nevertheless very respectful about Peter. He 
he says things about Peter which would be you know of great honor in the early church about how Peter was willing to suffer for the church and so on um but that I, I just said that quickly and now I'll hand it over to Ruth well let, let's hand it over to to Ruth uh, Ruth <laughs> a, a few thoughts from you before we have to start to interestingly I've I've thought about it a lot because as you mentioned at the beginning um Muslims bring this up quite a lot and mm. I'm very interested in um uh, evangelism to Muslims I just wanted to make a point uh, you were talking about Acts being um, written by Luke and therefore being biased towards Paul. I just wanted to highlight the fact that Peter, in his books, uh, one and two Peter, one of his letters, sorry, he does talk about the the sayings of Paul and the other scriptures. So he is clearly, in that sense, endorsing Paul's teaching. And that comes from uh, a letter written by him. So that should provide a little bit more balance to our argument that Peter and Paul did have a good working relationship in the governance of the church. Mm. I, I mean, any final thoughts, um, Peter S. Williams, on, on this, um, in as much as I, I suppose the, the main concern that I'm getting from you, Michael, is, but hang on, um, do I believe in Jesus or do I believe in Paul if I'm a Christian? And that's a problem for you. It's not, do I believe in Jesus or do I believe in Paul? I, I, obviously, I believe in either, uh, either but um, for a Christian, I would think, do I follow Jesus or do I follow Paul? Okay, I, I, is it a dichotomy? Yeah. Uh, not, well, I don't think so. I, I, I think what these guys have, have said in their references to, to Acts and, and to Peter is right. I think I follow Jesus, and um, Jesus has provided... Uh, various bits of scripture that are useful for helping me to do that and some of them are by Paul yeah uh, some of them are by Peter some of them are by James some of them are by folks we don't know like the book of Hebrews and so on um, and it, it seems that they are all um, giving the same basic uh, message um, sure if one were to find a contradiction between say something in Paul and something that Jesus is recorded as saying in the gospels um, one would go with with Jesus, but I didn't see any any contradictions, uh, as these um, my, my colleagues here have, have pointed out. I don't think there's any contradictions. I think Paul has really uh, extended the hand of fellowship uh, by the uh, Jerusalem church, and they say, "We'll do the evangelism to the half fellow Jews. You go and do the evangelism to the Gentiles." But we're all singing off the same hymn sheet. And it's one, one last point I might make: when uh, Paul in doing his evangelism, say, setting up the church in Corinthians, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, he talks to there about how when he came and set the church up there, he passed on to them the, the creedal uh, formula that he had received that he passes on to them uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, which even you know, re- really sceptical uh, atheist New Testament scholars like Gerd Ludemann and so on say, this is a creedal formula of early Christian belief that goes back to within, say, three years of the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And it's that message about Jesus' death and resurrection um, that Paul passes on material that comes from the Jerusalem church. Um, we, I'm afraid we're out of time, Michael, and, and as usual, uh, so much more that could be said. Thank you for coming on, though. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us from New York. Not a problem. Thank you very much. Love the show. Great to Thank talk you. to you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great to talk to you. Okay, we're we're at the end of part one uh, of Unbelievable today and uh, we'll be back in just a moment's time taking more questions from listeners from around the world on a special show with my guests from the UK Apologetics Facebook group. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong, because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you.
Welcome back to the second part of Unbelievable Today with me, Justin Briley, and doing things a bit differently on the show today. Not uh, one guest in studio, not two, but three. And we're all squeezing into one of our small studios here at Premier Towers. In fact, we're all sharing, well, all my guests are sharing one mic, so we're sort of swinging it between them as we go. Um, but uh, it's good fun, and um, we're, we're certainly getting to know each other better than we did just before we walked into the studio. And we're also getting to know a few people, um, sort of having short interactions from a few people that I uh, got in touch with with uh, before today's show um, I said I put it out on my Facebook page um, do you want to be involved are you an atheist agnostic would you like to put an objection to uh, the guys from UK Apologetics who are coming into studio and a few of you got in touch and one of them was um, uh, Tim uh, Tim Skellett uh, Tim uh, is actually Australian by birth, lives in Germany, but was raised somewhere else, so has a, an unusual accent. Um, Tim, thank you for joining us on the programme today. Thank you very much, Justin. It's great to have you on. Um, OK, well, let's jump straight into things. What's your objection to Christianity that, that you wanted to put to the, to the guest today? I don't want to make any general objections to Christianity as such. I would like to make a couple of remarks about Christians, okay. if you all don't mind. No, and we won't take offence. M- <laughs> sorry? We won't take offence. Okay, right, sorry, my apologies. <laughs> uh, one of those main points is fear, that a lot of Christians, especially younger ones, tend to live in fear, tend to live in fear of the outside world, which they artificially cut off from themselves, and try to build up what they think is an alternative Christian society to the society outside without really engaging with the society outside. Mm. That leads to a very false picture of what's actually happening out there. It also makes Christians very manipulable, and they are often manipulated by people who are out to scam. And the basis of fear is both psychologically and emotionally uh, emotionally and philosophically very bad because it makes for somebody who's used to living in fear if you're going to be a Christian I would suggest strongly you be courageous in your life I don't mean that you shout that you're Christian to everybody that's exactly not what I mean but I mean that you actually try to live a faith faith and life based on courage not on fear Mm. it's a a really interesting point you make there and and I'm trying to I suppose get my head around what particularly you have in mind there Tim so so are you referencing for instance that I don't know that certain parts of the evangelical church in America kind of maybe adopt a bit of a bubble mentality where they create their own culture and and don't want to kind of I don't know interact with mainstream culture what 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 sort of specific examples do you have in mind I will give you a few specific examples, if you will please all forgive me. I'm not only talking about America, I'm also talking about Australia, where I know Christians very well, and Britain to a large degree, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, when I first came to Germany, I was struck by German Christians drinking beer in the foyer not in the church itself, but in the foyer of a church with a celebration, because I was used to English-speaking Christians being very Puritan, yeah? Okay. And they're from Australia, but also partly from Britain. And then, that's one example, Mm. or with Christian music, so-called, yeah? The Christian music industry, or the Christian film industry, which, as you would point out, is mainly American, yeah? but we also know that a lot of the American culture is beginning to influence Britain, and that in a bad way. And okay. that includes the um, worst of the so-called Christian culture over there, which is very different from the British experience, well, historically... I, I think- and pragmatically, sorry. I, I, I think I get a sense of then, yeah, a little better what, what you're referring to when you talk about Christians having some sense of fear, um, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and it's that they kind of, I guess, yes, there might be a tendency to 
yes, make everything you know safe. A Christian, a Christian version of the music that you listen to, and a, a Christian version of the films that, that so you don't have to watch the, the mainstream ones. It, it's an interesting point, um, Tim. Um, Ruth, any thoughts on this? Yeah, uh, it's it's very interesting hearing what you have to say. Um, partly because I haven't been to America or Australia or to well, I've visited Germany, but I've not. I've not visited any of the churches out there. I suppose I can only really give you my personal story because I haven't met the Christians that you've met. However, I can say from my perspective, my interactions with Christians, my fellow Christians, and my understanding of my own life is dramatically different from the one that you've just described. Um, I think I was interested as well about, um, you, you know, the ignorant loathing of much of the outside world. I mean, actually, my personal story has been very different to that. I, um, I was brought up as a Christian, but then I uh, rebelled and um, did the whole sex, drugs, rock and roll. I thought that was what was cool. Um, but I soon after my relationship with God I loved God so much and I wanted that back that was much more important to me and is much more important to me than anything else in the world and so I I came back to Christianity and um, I honestly believe that my life is better now than it was back then and it's not because I deny myself necessarily there are a few things I do deny myself just because it's a personal choice But it's actually, God has helped me to realise that everything that has been created has been created for good. And actually, quite often, the things that we do wrong in life are a corruption of that. So, for example, the drinking is a perfect example. Getting drunk is not good, but having a drink is a good thing that should be enjoyed with friends and family. Um, Yeah, it's it's fascinating to hear, obviously, you, you feeling like... A, you don't recognise the kind of yes. culture necessarily that, that Tim's describing, but that in your own experience, you've, you've you're certainly no, you know, you, you haven't, as it were, hidden yourself away from the world. You you experienced everything. I you experienced had to it offer, all, but, and but in rollercoaster style, it did, did not satisfy in the end. <laughs> no, um, that's, I suppose in a sense though, it, it's important if you like. Not everyone can have that testimony of I, I went and did the prodigal son thing yeah. and came back again. But that even if we don't have that, we're still kind of clued in. We're not kind of somehow shielded in our yes. Christian communities yes, from the absolutely. reality of mm. of life um, and so on. Is that your worry, Tim? That 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 sometimes Christian communities can tend to be a bit insular in that way. Is that is that your fear? Well, yes, insularity is of course a leading problem. May I ask Ruth a question, please? And yes. this question also goes to Justin to everybody else. Sure. Okay. Now, let's assume that you think um, that a little bit of spark of God, if your God is worthwhile, is in everybody. Okay? I believe that we're made in the image of God. Uh, Yeah, that's a different thing, as you're to know. Okay, Mm. allow me to go straight through to my question. Okay. And that is, do you see a value, and this is a question for you, Ruth, and for Justin, and for everybody there. Sure. In doing exactly what you're doing now, that is interacting, say, with somebody like me who's a hardline atheist, but who is not an anti-theist. Yeah, you get the difference? Yeah. Do you see a value in interacting and learning from each other? I'm not talking about existence of God arguments. They're sterile and they go nowhere. They only go in circles. Yeah. Okay, I'm talking about important things of life um, and learning from each other. Do you think that's possible or do you see Christians as not really having anything to learn from non-Christians, including atheists? Really good question. Um, In answer to that, I can tell you that one of my best friends is a very strong atheist. I've known her for many years and there's many things I've learned from her. (laughs) There's also many things that we disagree on. (laughs) <laughs> because I fundamentally and faithfully and very strongly believe in Jesus Christ, that he's the son of God, that he's the saviour of my life. And we <laughs> will debate that avidly. Uh, but having said that, we discuss politics, and she is a very intelligent woman. I don't <laughs> believe she's right about 
her belief of Christianity and her belief about God and metaphysics. And we discuss uh-huh. that in depth. But there are many things that I can learn from her and I love her very deeply. Great answer. Let's pass it over um, because it's been fascinating to get a little bit of insight into your life as well. Ruth. But what's your perspective on this, Peter, yeah, Peter Williams? I, I think this is a real uh, salient point that our, our friend in Germany makes uh, and a real... Uh, call uh, that the church uh, should heed and pay attention to uh, that it is it is not godly to be insular and sort of pietistic there's certainly traditions within the church today and historically that have been sort of pietistic insular inward looking wanting to uh, protect christians from the evils of the world and so on Um, the thing is that that is by definition unbiblical because it stops you from uh, following Jesus' call to be salt and light in the world mm. uh, you know the, the, the phrase that's sometimes heard being in the world but not of it is not in the Bible actually uh, but it's a kind of good uh, kind of paraphrase of, uh, of the New Testament approach to uh, the world um, everybody whether they're a believer or not is made in the image of God is valuable is precious mm. uh, and, and Christians should celebrate people and culture as well I think Christians have sometimes a deserved reputation of uh, simply being critical about um, popular culture, about films, about music and so on. And of course, because people are fallen, that fallenness gets reflected in our art and our culture and politics and society and so on. So there are things that that Christians rightfully want to be critical of. But there there will also be good things that the church should be known for celebrating and saying, yeah, there's good things in art, whether it's made by a Christian or not. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, in a sense, what you've given us isn't obje- an objection, it's more an observation that you've had about the Christian church in your experience, yep. Tim. But obviously, yep. our guest mm. here is saying that's either not their experience or they agree it shouldn't be the way it is if it is in <laughs> places. Um, maybe just time for, for one more reflection from, from our other guest in the studio here, Callum Miller. Yeah, thank you for calling in, Tim. And it's been really interesting to hear your experience. And I'm sorry you've had that experience in so many cases. Uh, I just guess I just quickly kind of emphasize my own experience. Uh, and you might be glad to know that just the other day, a few days ago, I unfollowed about half the Christians on my Facebook because the, all they were all they were talking about was church things or American politics. And I thought it was just incredibly unhelpful. Um, and, and I've encouraged and, and spoken to a lot of Christians since then. Um, telling them you know you need to be engaging with non-christians not just on these issues about god's existence or about jesus but just in the general things in life things you go through whether you have children or um, sports you both enjoy i've i've really encouraged other christians to be talking and engaging with their non-christian friends about this Uh, and this is what i do all the time with with the non-christians that i live with at the moment uh, and we have a really good time and so i'd encourage you that there are Although we make mistakes as Christians and and so on, there are plenty of Christians around who who really do want to engage and be genuine friends with non Christians like yourself. So yeah, thank you for calling in. Yeah, thank thank you. Good on you. Thank you. Uh, Anything you want to add before we have to go? No, I could have told you one more funny story, but it sounds like you've got very little time left. So I won't. Time for a funny story. Tell me your funny story. Okay, in my blog, I did detail such an experience of a relative of mine in Melbourne in Australia. Now, Melbourne is famously, it has a church on every second corner and a pub on every first corner. Yeah? It's not an unchristian city. <laughs> but my relative suddenly announced she wanted to form a Christian dog walkers club <laughs> in what is practically a Christ, mainly Christian country in a Christian city. And you think to yourself, isn't this, one, a tiny bit superfluous, and two, hideously arrogant? Um, obviously, she only meant true Christians, right. as per her definition. I won't go into that. But the third uh, point is, what is the use of this? We're talking about walking dogs. Mm, mm. And as far as I know, if your God is real and your God is worthwhile, your God is not going to make any difference between how a dog is walked. <laughs> I don't believe that the fallenness yeah. you speak of would be so terribly reflected even in that sphere. I, I mean, having said all that, and, and it is a good example, I suppose, Tim, I mean, 
I think most Christians would say, that, but yes, we should be in the world. We should be absolutely having relationships with people who aren't Christians. Of course we should. But there is also a value in gathering together. I, it's what you do at church on a Sunday. You gather with other like-minded Christians because it is a form of encouragement and, and, and fellowship and everything else. And in, in that sense, it is, to some extent, yes, a kind of an exclusive kind of a, a thing. Not that you stop anyone coming in, but, but it, it, it is, if you like, a place specifically where Christians gather together. Now, presumably you don't object to that per se even even if we don't take no, it to the level of, of forming dog walking clubs but but um yeah it, it's it's an interesting one but, but thank you for telling us that anyway tim may can... i give you one very last example very quickly go on then go on me. then I've just thought of it in britain in england above all in england in the late 1600s uh, as clergymen became ever more Puritan, there was a very real Puritan wave throughout the late 1600s, the 1700s. Yeah? Uh, churches start, of the Church of England started more and more isolating their choirs. Before then, the church choir had quite often also been the village choir, mm. quite secular. They were to do both secular and church. And clergymen started banning that. They said the church choir should only perform in church. This led to a withdrawal of the church from the world. It led to a gradual withdrawal of the church from village life and a great loss for the, for the community itself, mm. the village, because every village and town needs every support mechanism it can get. And for the church, because as the church gradually separated itself off, eventually, you know, 300 years later, you have all the problems that the Church of England has today in a hugely declining yeah. membership. Well, I, I don't think you'll find any argument in the sense that that, that, that Sorry, from, from this, no, 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 no need to apologise, but no argument that, that that's certainly not something anyone here would want to see happen in terms of, yeah, we're all obviously for the integration of, uh, of church with the community as far as possible. But... Um, Great to have you on. Thank you, Tim, and, uh, and all you. the best. We'll let you get on, on with things now. Uh, thanks for calling in from Germany. Great to talk to you. Cheerio. Thank you. Bye. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. OK, well, the final caller on today's programme as we take uh, some uh, various uh, calls and, and objections to Christianity or observations, at least, about Christianity from a number of uh, listeners to the programme from around the world. Uh, he's Brian Broom, based out in California. He's a former Baptist. He lost his faith, though, and he actually started the Atheist Community of San Jose two years ago, which has grown to some 500 people uh, who are associated with it. Uh, Brian, welcome along to the programme. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Um, Brian, I think your question um, is about the moral argument, which is something we've covered a few times on Unbelievable over the years. Um, do you want to just briefly spell out what the issue is, and, and we'll see what, what our folks have to say here? Sure. So I've had this conversation with many uh, Christians, and it, it seems to never get past a certain point. There, there's, uh, We usually can't define objective morality in the first place, but if we do, we can't get past the idea of a good example of what that objective morality is and where that comes from. So mm. maybe you guys can talk about that a little bit. Okay, well, well maybe it would be good just to define, first of all, for those who maybe are tuning in who aren't even sure what the moral argument is, um, maybe Peter S. Williams, do you want to just mm -hmm. quickly do that for us before we come to the question of whether we sure. can even talk about uh, objective morality. Okay, so um, a pretty standard version of the moral argument would go along these lines. It would start with uh, the observation that in our moral experience we come across uh, certain uh, moral duties or prescriptions um, that are, uh, and this is the crucial term here, objective rather than subjective. That is, uh, they are things that are true that we can be wrong or right about, uh, uh, regardless of our personal preferences, what we choose or decide, or our culture chooses or decides, and so on, um, that um, they are facts about reality, mm -hmm. uh, as it were. Um, the second premise would then be that the best explanation for the existence of such moral facts uh, is the existence of a good God. Mm -hmm. And if those two premises are true, then it follows that there is such a God. Right. And what it turns on is this idea that there is such a thing as objective right. moral facts yeah. rather than 
uh, the morality we adopt simply being a subjective aspect of our culture and so on. That's right. So coming back to you then, Brian, what's what's your issue um, with this? Is it that you, you've never been really understood or been given a good example of an objective moral fact? What, what's the issue? Yeah, I think that's, that's true. I, I haven't been given a very good example of a moral fact, and I think usually when it does come up, uh, you know, whether it's murder or, or, or something along those lines, uh, we, we always end up sort of um, going back and forth about whether or not that's truly an objective fact mm. and mm. whether or not, and also whether or not God is bound by these objective truths as well, because sometimes there's a, a loophole that God is not bound by the same objective morality that we are. Okay, so, so there's a couple of questions there. Um, so, okay, do you want to try and give us a, a, an objective moral fact to Sure, and I think there's two levels at which I'd approach this. One, of course, level is to try and just give an example, mm. uh, and a, an example that philosophers uh, typically use here uh, is something like, it is wrong to torture small children just for the fun of it. Okay. Um, so that that excludes a discussion about, well, maybe I could think of some circumstance where there could be some uh, overriding. overriding reason that would mean yeah. it would be the right the, thing. The just fate, for the fun. Fate of, the fate of the world <laughs> yeah, was at stake or somehow. something. Okay. Um, so uh, that's the kind of typical example people will use. But then I think at a, at a deeper level as well, we have this we not only have these intuitions that certain things are objectively right or wrong, like it's being wrong to torture small children for fun, but they also have this deep intuition that that what we decide about moral issues actually really matters, that we put lots of effort into thinking, well, what mm. is the right thing to mm. do? Mm. Even if we might think, well, we're fallible, and maybe after, at the end of our discussion we'll get it wrong. Mm. But even to have the intuition that you could get it wrong and that morality really obje- matters and therefore it's worth putting lots of effort into thinking about, well, what is the right thing to do, shows that we have this deep intuition that there are objective rights and wrongs and that we can mm. get morality wrong even if any example that we might come up mm. with we might think well we're fallible so we could be wrong about that you see yeah. but to think well i could be wrong about it <laughs> implies that there's something there's right. to get yeah. right or yeah. wrong and and I, I don't know about you brian but i often find interestingly many atheists sort of tacitly assuming at some kind of objective moral standard so when they criticize someone for being homophobic for instance they're saying it's actually wrong to um, be homophobic. You know, there's a right and wrongness about this. It's not just my opinion. It's not just the culture I happen to live in. If people were homophobic back in the 1500s, that was wrong then, just as much as it's wrong today. But do you have a pro- do you do you have a problem with the idea then of that kind of an objective moral fact? Um, are you, in that sense, a subjectivist when it comes to morality? Uh, I I think I do fall in the in the subjective. Uh, Side, but I, I think it's more because I, if we're to say, say for the homosexuality uh, argument, mm. I, I think we've changed our mind more, more because we we understand it better. We we had more information. Mm-hmm. So if, if we're if we're back in the you know 1500s and we're using simply a biblical understanding of homosexuality is wrong just because God says so, but then as we grow and understand what that actually is and that it's not actually an immoral thing. We see it in nature. It's actually quite normal. So we change our minds. And I don't think there's anything that's objective about that. I don't think there's a truth buried in there. I think that we're just discovering things, and, and it changes over time. But I if we're discovering things, doesn't it mean yeah. that there is a fact to be discovered? I guess that's what I'm driving at, is that, well, yes, of course, people have disagreed about homosexuality down the years, but what you're saying is we've arrived at the truth of the matter. I mean, that's what you right, seem yeah. to be saying. Yeah, and I, I, I well, at least right now it seems that we do. I mean, we, we're we're all well, not we're all we're all not in agreement, but most of us uh, can can agree to something. But I also think that it's it has to do with what type of world we want to live in. If uh, I mean, t- torturing babies for fun is is an is an example I've heard before, but it's not something that I can use as far as well. Here's an example of when I was asked to torture a baby for fun, and I said no. But if if you go to like say just say stealing, and you say well. Is stealing wrong? Is it, steal, is it wrong to steal something? And you, can you, and you're in that in that situation of going, well, I could take this, I could steal this, or I could not steal this. And usually, in my mind, it's more of a, well, what kind of a world do I want to live in? Do I want to live in a world where people just steal all the time and steal my things, and and it's just you know bedlam, or do I want to live in a world where we respect each other 
owner's mm. uh, you know, property. Yeah. But even there, you see, you seem to be thinking in terms of certain conceptions of reality, certain ways of living, certain societies being better than others, and that if, mm-hmm. if one way of living is a better way of living, that you feel you have some sort of duty to pursue that way of life rather than the other ways of life that are not good. And so uh, constantly c- coming through here is this underlying intuition that there's something to be right or wrong about to get true or, or falsity in our descriptions of what way of life is better, what way of organising society, you know, is better because there's if 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 <laughs> say there was some sociopath who said no i much prefer a society where people can go around stealing from each other some kind of anarchist or something would you sure. be prepared to say to them brian you're wrong about that that's not the best way society should be or would you say well that's your opinion i've got mine well i don't think i can enforce a, a sociopath to to adhere to my uh to my worldview but uh Again, what kind of God would create sociopaths? <laughs> well, that's a bit anyway, of a different question, um, but yeah, I, I mean, right. okay. Uh, well, but, but, but does it? Yeah, I was just going to say, does, does it does it make sense that, or does it make more sense that we have these rules to, that that we are sort of developing as we progress in society, or that they've come down from more of a a higher a higher power that we're just discovering? I guess that's kind of the the, the bigger mm. question. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that is exactly the, the key question, and that, I mean that's sort of the question of the other premise of the argument. One premise is the issue of are these moral duties and things objective or not? The other is that given that they're objective, what's the best explanation of them? Um, so that's that's the other premise then that you're mm. you're turning to. Mm. Well, look, folks, we'll uh, carry on this conversation with Brian after a short break. You're listening to Unbelievable with me, Justin Briley, special guest from the UK Apologetics Facebook group, as we take some interesting calls from sceptics. So we've been taking calls across the course of today's show from a variety of people who I uh, got in touch with after putting up a message on my Facebook page, the Unbelievable Facebook page, saying, would you like to come on a show and interact with some of the members of the UK Apologetics Facebook group? Um, Well, we've uh, heard all of our callers and we're just in the middle of this conversation with Brian Broom, who's calling in from California in the United States, talking about the moral argument. And uh, so maybe uh, just as we pick this up again, um, uh, maybe you'd like to give your comments on this particular way of looking at things, Callum. Um, Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a tangent because I actually don't normally kind of endorse the standard moral argument. Uh, So this might throw a bit of a kind of curveball into the works. Uh, But I just want to kind of throw out the suggestion, I guess, of a different kind of moral argument, which is to do with moral knowledge. And the argument here goes as follows. Uh, If atheism is true, if God doesn't exist, it's very difficult to account for moral knowledge. There's no reason why we would expect our moral beliefs in general to line up with moral reality or, you know, the actual moral fact about the world. Uh, But if theism is true, there's good reason to think that we uh, have moral knowledge because God would want to give us moral knowledge so that we can act responsibly towards each other. And so if you follow those two kinds of premises, um, you can actually conclude that are having moral knowledge, the fact that we do know things about the moral world um, is actually good evidence for God. Um, So I don't... Obviously, that might not be the moral argument you wanted to talk about, but there's just something to, to throw I out mean, as well. I what, mean, what that you're essentially saying there is that um, on, if, if we live in a godless universe, uh, an atheistic worldview, if, if you like, there's no particular reason why we would arrive at the right knowledge about these moral facts. Let's say that there are moral facts about the way we should live and so on. But there's no particular reason why we would have got to know about them if, if there was, wasn't some kind of guiding force pointing us in that direction is that kind of where, where i'm getting at yeah so 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 there are i guess a few reasons why you might think that if god doesn't exist our moral beliefs aren't really justified because for example moral facts don't have any kind of causal relationship with the world they can't in, so we normally know that there's a desk in front of me for example because the desk uh causes photons to reflect onto my retina and then i see the desk and then i know that there's a desk in front of me but we don't really have any analogous kind of knowledge in the case of morality that is not really the case that there are moral facts which cause anything in us so it's hard to see how we can have that kind of knowledge about it did you follow much of that brian i mean does, does this help at all um in terms of helping to kind of elucidate what the argument is and 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 how you might arrive at it if if you do believe in moral facts yeah, I think we're, because a lot of times we're talking about 
uh, you know, these concepts and the words that are associated with them. So, like, love is kind of a, a nebulous concept in some in some ways because you you love in different ways with different people. So, I, I think morals is kind of in that realm where you're talking about something that we have that we all can agree on that it's it's something, but we're not exactly sure, you know what it is outside of itself we can't exactly point to it as a thing right like a desk you can't just say well this is morals um mm. it's, it's a little more conceptual than that so i don't know I, I think adding the god to it doesn't really help except for being an easy answer i don't think it actually helps to explain much Callum, do you come back on that so so are you saying that um are you saying that there is a problem in understanding how we have knowledge about moral facts, or are you saying that there isn't a problem anyway, and we it's easy to know, you know, it, we can see why we have knowledge of moral facts? Well, no, I think that I think that morals are still subjective, so I, I don't think okay. we've come to yeah. any massive conclusion of that of, of, of truth. I think that we are we are discovering things about what works best in our societies. And but, but again, you you use the word best. Yeah. Uh, right, which right. suggests that there are worse and better ways, uh, which suggests that there's some right. kind of standard out there by which we could measure it. So, so well, I, are you tacitly yeah. smuggling in an assumption about the objectivity of, of morality by using even a term like the best way to live and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. So I, I would probably go back to kind of the Sam Harris model of the well-being of conscious creatures. If we're, if we're sort of using that as a baseline... And, and again, this is, this is an uh, agreement that we have in our society, right? We're not talking about... Because the sociopaths would not agree, right? We, we can't get them to get on board with the well-being of conscious creatures. But for the majority of our society, we can. And I think that if, if we use that as a baseline as being more of the best way to, to, to deal with these issues, um, you know, that, that examples come up about, you know, is it, is it good to drink bleach or not good to drink bleach? I think we can all agree that it's not good. You know, well, these what we can agree on is it, it, it will damage your internal organs. Uh, I, I don't sure. know whether that actually says anything about the morality. That's a different kind of area. Is it? I mean, come back to you, Peter S. Williams. You wanted to. Yeah, it's just interesting mentioning Sam Harris. I've, I've read Sam Harris's uh, book where he tries to defend. Um, he believes in objective morals, but he tries to say that science can give you knowledge of objective morals. But actually, he explicitly contradicts himself in that book and, and gives the story away and says that science uh, cannot justify scientifically the assumption that you have to make to buy into his ethical th system that he gives there, which is that you have to assume that the flourishing of, of sentient creatures is a good thing. Mm. He says the demand for that radical justification of saying, no, nihilism is... Uh, that kind of subjectivist nihilism about morals is false is something that science can't decide for you. You have to accept that at the basis of his system. But that's a that's a moral metaphysical intuition about objective right and wrong. So, so as far as you're concerned, the whole thing is is a question begging exercise yeah, because absolutely. He, he's assumed the whole thing he was meant to be proving. Yeah, and he explicitly says that. <laughs> well, okay. Well, look, we, we, we're running out of time, and it's a shame because we, we again only just. Uh, Scratching the surface of this one, but that's the way it is when, when you do a, a, a lot of stuff in, in the course of just one show. It's been really interesting, though, Brian, getting your take on that. Um, uh, I mean, could I mean, do you do you, do you feel like that any kind of thing could could be put to you to, to make to convince you that there is an, an objective moral fact? You know, um, you know, I can imagine a lot of people who maybe think they're relativists maybe stop being quite so relativistic when their child has been abducted or something you know i'm sure most people would say that's in you know absolutely wrong full stop um right. you know I, I i a lot of people and i think a lot of people do go through life actually assuming whether they call it that or not the the the, the reality of objective moral facts but but do you really believe that none of that actually really is is a case of right or wrong it's just about kind of i don't know biological advantages they confer on us and that kind of thing well, I, I think it does have a lot to do with with our our sense of empathy and and i mean that's that's obviously without the you know in, in the entire uh primate world is is the sort of empathy that we that we see and I, I think really morals are just sort of an extension of that and and i don't i haven't been given a really good example of something that you can test as a definite objective truth that is always the case, even when it comes to a deity. 
um, a lot of this, at least everything that I've come across has been subjective, and I'm okay with that, but I, I, I would like to be convinced otherwise. Okay. Well, look, it's been very interesting to, to speak to you. Thank you for, for joining us on the line today, all the way from California, Brian. And, um, and thanks. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, that draws to a close our uh, interactions today on the programme. Thanks again to uh, Callum. Ruth and Peter, who have joined me in studio, all gathered around a microphone. Um, it's been a, a, a friendly interaction, and it's been good to have a few different people mm. interacting. Um, if you want to find out more about Peter S. Williams, uh, PeterSWilliams.com, I think, is the, uh, the, the, where, the place to go. But you can, um, if you're interested in you know, finding like-minded apologists, and you don't have to be from the UK, I think you accept people outside the UK on the Facebook group as well, do you, Callum? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, check that out. Uh, search for them on Facebook, UK Apologetics, or go to the uh, the blog, apologeticsuk.blogspot.co.uk. But uh, from Ruth, Callum and Peter, thank you very much for being with me on the programme today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's classic replay. Do let us know what you thought. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash premier unbelievable or tweet us at unbelievable fe. For more resources for exploring faith, head over to our website premierunbelievable.com and if you register there, you'll unlock access to all the content on the website and we'll send you updates and exclusive content through the Premier Unbelievable newsletter, including bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. See you next time for another classic replay of Unbelievable. Unbelievable.